0: Stop.
1: God, we thank you for another week. We thank you for this time together as an ohana, Uh, locally and globally. God, we have people watching from all over and we thank you that um, people are jumping on. We uh, pray for the book of Acts as we're going through the sermon series, that Holy Spirit, we would be learning so much about you and encountering you in new and deeper ways so that we can navigate this time Uh, We thank you for this staff and for the leaders of Blue Water and all the things that are happening behind the scenes. We thank you for the Ohana groups, God, and we pray this week in our Ohana groups that you would land, you would move in, and you would show us um, your goodness and your power so we can minister to each other. And we pray for those who are seeking you, and we ask, God, that you would just move into their room right now as they're listening and land on them and speak your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name. Amen.
2: One of the things the staff team misses about getting together in the same physical space on Sundays is that we don't get to talk to people. We don't get to do questions and answers with people. So we're inviting you to send in your video questions and we'll do our best to answer them. This week, the first video question comes from Nana. I
3: have a question for Jordan. Jordan, how come you never let me date? Is it because that you'll never see the kid in church again after a date with Norma or Nana?
2: Nana, the reason we don't let you date is not because we are afraid you will drive young men out of the church. It's because we're afraid too many young men will come to the church for the wrong reason.
3: Uncle Jordan, why isn't the virus going away?
1: I care about you.
2: Thank you, Suvi. I care about you too, honey. And in the future, I think we're going to have Suvi ask all of the questions. Uh, You ask, uh, honey, when is the virus going to go away? And you know, there are always viruses around. Every cold that we get, every flu that we get, when we get the sniffles, those things are always caused by viruses. And we don't need to be too worried about them. We just need to worry about how best to manage them uh, and to take care of one another. Uh, when there's a virus uh, in the area because of this virus we haven't been able to meet together in a big group recently but that's going to change over the next few weeks our mayor has just issued new guidelines so the church is going to be able to start meeting together uh, with some uh, uh, some adjustments Uh, but we will keep you posted on how that's going to work over the next few weeks we're going to share the details so suvi I look forward to seeing you soon.
4: My name is Neil
2: Hafner. I'm known as Kristen's husband amongst the Blue Water community. Jordan speaks about purpose, and I understand that you can find purpose in in most jobs out there, but I'm curious as to what jobs Jordan would find interesting for himself if he wasn't a pastor. That's my first question. And second question is, What song does Jordan like to dance to? And I'm hoping that he would be able to bless us with a little rendition of that dance and what he enjoys so much about that song. And that's about it. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Neil. Technically, you asked a few different questions there, uh, but I will try to get through all of the questions in the time allotted. First. Uh, What kind of job would I pursue to fulfill my purpose if I were not a pastor? Uh, Strange story. Uh, I never wanted to be a pastor, and I'm not even sure I'm all that qualified to be a pastor. I remember having a conversation with my father when I was in high school. He was not a churchgoer. But he suggested to me, when we were having a conversation about my future, that maybe I would like to be a pastor someday. And I distinctly remember saying to him, no way, I would never like that. Um, But I think it's important not to define your purpose in terms of what you do, but in terms of how you bring purpose to whatever it is that you do. And I think I've been able to find ways to be purposeful, even as a leader of a local church. Um, I find a lot of purpose in teaching, in coaching. I really love to write. And I think that no matter what I did, I would still uh, try to find ways to teach truth and to express truth with a little bit of creativity, a little bit of coaching to develop people and build community. Whether I did that at a church or in a business or in an academic setting, I think I'd kind of be up to the same sort of thing. As for your next questions about the music I like and what I like to dance to, I'm very partial to James Taylor. I love the band Fleetwood Mac. But if it comes to dancing, my favorite thing to dance to is actually the old classic, the Tennessee Waltz, because that was the favorite waltz of my grandfather. And because I grew up waltzing, taught to waltz by my grandmother, Nana. And today, uh, if we get the opportunity, we still like to take a waltz together. And almost always, it's to the Tennessee Waltz. That said, man, every once in a while, I just have to get my jam on. I need a little techno music in my life, and I need to bust a move. So let me show you what that looks like when I really get the beat on. Cut, cut, that's great, thank you. We're out of time, unfortunately. I love the, uh, I love the thought process, though. Great job, everybody, great work. All right. Thank let's, you. Let's get some lunch.
4: Good morning, Blue Water. We gather to make God big so that we can overcome the world. Thank you for joining us in our big gathering. Another place you can join us weekly is in our Ohana groups. Blue Water Ohana groups are small group gatherings where everyone gets to share about their life of faith. If you've never been in a small group, or if you're exploring the idea of what faith life with Jesus could be like, I'd love to personally invite you to my, Jesse, and Johanna's Ohana group. Uh, We meet Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Email me at antonio at bluewatermission.org by Tuesday night and I'll send you the Zoom link. Uh, As a matter of fact, you can look at our Ohana Group webpage and whatever group on whatever night looks good for you, why don't you email those leaders as well. Uh, Every small group will have some sort of way of meeting each other, um, a discussion over scripture, some prayer and worship. Uh, we expect God to show up and meet us where we are. And we prioritize inviting newcomers because, uh, in my opinion, newcomers fill the group with the right amount of faith. Alright, we're going to continue our worship with our offering. Uh, if you're new or visiting please feel no obligation to give today but consider this worship service in our community our offering to you but we would love to keep in touch with you so go to BlueWaterMission.org, scroll to the bottom and enter your name and email address for those of you giving today you can give in two ways via the online website or by snail mail so just snail mail your offering to the office. A couple of weeks back we did a community in quarantine photo journalism project um, and we have a couple more pictures to share. I've been getting fun notes and stories uh, throughout the week about you guys sharing meals with neighbors, going to outdoor social distancing concerts with them, meeting new people, praying for businesses while supporting local businesses and uh, overall getting to know people people in a deeper and fuller way. Love to hear those stories. Um, Keep doing it, keep sending me pictures and emails about that. Uh, It's such an encouragement and we'll do our best to get those pictures out to all of you. All right, let's pray for our kids. Kids, can you stand up? And those around, you can extend a hand of blessing. Oh Father, we thank you for our children. We thank you for the creativity that they bring to our households and to our congregation. We bless their time uh, with, your, with your fellowship, Lord, uh, with your wisdom, and with your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
2: All right, say it with me. It's never too much. It's never it's too much. much. It's never too little. It's never too little. It's never too late. It's It's never never too late. We can shorten it. Never too much, never too little, never too late.
4: Never too much,
2: never never too little, never too late. Are you willing to die for what you believe? Are you willing to die for what you believe? Uh,
4: Yes. I hope so. Yes. Sure. Yeah.
2: Mindy, Mindy Swanson is with us today. She's the only Blue Water veteran who has actually been shot on the foreign mission field. So I tend to believe her. You other guys, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. You don't know that story? Yeah. It was a hard day for Mindy. But uh, still with this girl. Are you willing to die for what you believe? Uh, Throughout history, at different times, Christians have had occasion to ask themselves that question. Uh, usually during normal life, there's a slightly different but better question. Um, How are you willing to die for what you believe? Because most of us are called to uh, die to ourselves every day as you follow Jesus. It's a very familiar concept for those of us uh, who are followers. In some way, I have, I have thought... Uh, From time to time that it would be simpler to like literally die for christ in a moment than to live for christ day in and day out year after year it might be harder but at least it's simple to be an actual physical martyr but if you're a living sort of martyr if you're living a lifestyle of sacrificing for jesus sacrificing for what you believe day to day then you have to ask yourself well What am I willing to sacrifice or how am I willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to sacrifice your dreams? Are you willing to sacrifice your life plans? Are you willing to sacrifice your schedule? Are you willing to sacrifice your comforts? Are you willing to endure a little embarrassment for Jesus from time to time to risk your reputation or your social awkwardness? Uh, One of the things that we've been seeing uh, as we go through the book of Acts and study the stories of the early church, is that they existed in this atmosphere of eager sacrifice. We've already talked again and again in the stories so far how the early Christians were financially sacrificial, sharing radically everything that they had in order that no one among them should have any need. And we've seen uh, the chief apostles, representatives of the Big 12, get roughed up from time to time in the story, get thrown into jail and threatened. So they're uh, sacrificing and enduring threats at a higher level. Sacrifice can take all sorts of different forms, uh, as it turns out. There's the sacrifice of service, which is sort of a giving of, a giving of your life. There's sort of classic sacrifice, which is a giving up, giving up of your life, giving up of important things in your life. And then I suppose there's suffering or enduring, which is a not giving in as you live the life of faith. And all forms of sacrifice basically boil down to to two things, love and faith. If you sacrifice for someone, well, that is the definition of loving someone. And then if you're called to sacrifice for God. Well, that's a measure of whether or not you think it will be worth it to sacrifice things for God. And and that, of course, is an issue of expectation. It's an issue of faith. When I was a sophomore in college, I guess I was 19 years old, I had a series of dreams. They lasted about 30 nights straight. And these dreams were all about sacrifice and, and, and martyrdom. I'll never forget the first dream in the series. In this dream... I was being chased around a jungle by these guys with guns, and I knew that they wanted me to stop preaching. They, they were trying to intimidate me to stop preaching, and eventually they caught me, and they threw me into the shed, and uh, I, I distinctly remember this guy holding a gun to my forehead and saying, say that you're going to stop preaching about God, or I will kill you right now. At that point in my life, Um, I had uh, never preached a sermon before, but uh, somehow in the dream I knew that's what God wanted me to do. And the bulk of the dream was simply that moment. I still remember the vision of looking at the gun barrel as it faced my head and thinking hard about whether or not it was worth it. It's like, well, um, I don't want to stop preaching because I feel like that's what God would want me to do. But somehow in the dream, I knew that my preaching had not been very effective. I hadn't convinced anyone to follow Jesus. I hadn't started any revival. Um, I hadn't accomplished anything in life yet. And so I was thinking, well, maybe I should just say that I'll quit. It's not like I'm doing any good anyway. And that part of the dream, and it seemed to last all night, uh, if you've ever had a dream like that. And then eventually, at the end of the dream, I said, No, I'm sorry, I'm not going to stop preaching. Go ahead and kill me. And the guy pulled the trigger, and that's where I woke up. Uh, It was one of those dreams that was realer than real. you know. And then every night for 30 or 40 days, I had a similar dream, only every night I got killed in a different way. Sometimes I was machine gunned to death. Sometimes I was dropped from a cliff. Sometimes I drowned. Once I remember I was sawn in two. Occasionally I was blown up by a bomb. Like every night. That was my experience in my dreams. And it got so it was kind of funny for me. I was just like, oh, I wonder how I'm gonna die tonight. And often in the dreams, after I would get blown to pieces, I somehow was still able to talk. And after the dust settled, I would speak to the guy who blew me up and say, you know, you still should probably follow Jesus or something like that. Once in the dream, after I'd fallen off a cliff and been broken and died at the bottom, I had a distinct impression of my spirit rising up and passing through some sort of invisible barrier into a different sort of world that I glimpsed for just a moment before waking up. It was like a rehearsal for martyrdom. Um, As of yet, I have not been killed for my faith. But very frequently, I have one of those moments like I had in the first dream. It's like, is it worth it for me to keep going? you know is this actually worth my life and then i've had to confront my own sense of uncertainty or my own sense of futility or my own sense of obscurity i haven't accomplished enough yet to really feel good about dying as a martyr and that to me is is the, as real a moment now as it was for me back then. You know, is it worth it? The spirit of martyrdom, I think the spirit of being a living martyr always boils down to that question, is it worth it? Our text for today comes out of Acts chapter six and chapter seven, and it's the story of the first martyr of the church, the story of this guy named Stephen, who was the first guy to ever die for Jesus as it turns out. It's also the moment in the story of the early church in which Christians went from sort of generally sacrificing, sacrificing money or or sacrificing certain social freedoms, to really suffering for him because the martyrdom of Stephen, the killing of Stephen, began uh, a large-scale persecution against Christians uh, in at least that part of the world. Uh, But we'll eventually see that the persecution was actually the key to global expansion of the church because it forced the Christians to leave their normal lives and to get very, very creative. So let's read through the story. Uh, It's a long story, so what we're going to do is take excerpts from it. Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7. You can follow along in your Bibles or follow along in the Scripture. That we will throw up on the screen for you. Beginning in... Verses 1 through 11 of 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them, that means Jews who are ethnically Greek, people who believed in God but were ethnically Greek. Uh, The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. You will recall from the past story that one of the things the church was doing was passing out food, uh, taking care of the welfare of the neediest among them and making sure that everybody could get by. And the Greek widows, the ethnically Greek widows were being overlooked, presumably because they were not as well known uh, to the Jewish, ethnically Jewish leaders of the church. So this was a problem. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. So choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose, here's the list, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. All of those guys on the list have kind of non-Jewish names or Greek names. So these were uh, people chosen by... Um, the ethnically Greek community to kind of represent them. They're mostly ethnically Greek or at least non-Jewish people. Um, So an organizational improvisation. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Things are going great. And then the story continues. Now Stephen a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. So there was a, a Jewish synagogue that was comprised mostly of People who believed in God and followed Judaism, but were from outside of Israel. Um, So ethnically diverse, even though they were committed to the quote-unquote Jewish religion. And Stephen was a part of that crowd, as we've already explained. So these men began to argue with Stephen about Jesus. But they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law and they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. Skipping down a little bit to the beginning of chapter seven as Stephen appears before the Sanhedrin, uh, the court, the Congress of the Jewish people. And the high priest asked him, asked Stephen, are these charges true? At which point, Stephen launches into a very long lecture about Jewish history. He's been accused of blasphemy against Moses. He goes on to explain the role of, of Abraham, the role of Moses, and he mentions other patriarchs and other prophets. Basically, he sort of displays that he knows full well the story of God and the Jewish people. Uh, but he also implies that uh, over the years, uh, lots of religious leaders in the history of Israel had misunderstood the role of Abraham, the role of Isaac, and the role of, of the prophets, misunderstood the fact that it was all heading toward Jesus. So we pick up the story uh, way down in chapter 51 as Stephen wraps up his address to the Sanhedrin. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen just goes off on them, his accusers, his judges. Well, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen is given a a vision of heaven. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is Saul's first appearance in the story. He would later change his name to Paul and would become the greatest Christian missionary in world history but when he first appears, uh, he's just helping people execute Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the story of the first martyr, the death of, of Stephen. It's interesting to me that this story starts out with the church just sort of maturing organizationally. There's a problem. Uh, The church is becoming large, it's becoming ethnically diverse, and they have to figure out a way to take care of everybody. So the church has a discussion. The apostles has the church solve their own issues and nominate some guys who are gonna be really good at solving this problem. And so the the community, probably the, the, the more Greek or ethnically diverse part of the community, nominates these guys. Stephen tops the list. There's this fellow Philip that's also mentioned on the list. He's going to become prominent in uh, beginning in Acts chapter eight. So these were not guys who were part of the big twelve apostles. Uh, these were people who had joined up later, who came from other places, uh, but uh, would become important in just the running of well, food distribution. Uh, in, in this case, this case, the Greeks started taking care of the Greeks. And uh, and priests started to convert as well. They started making inroads into the most religious part of the Jewish uh, community. Um, One of the things that impresses me about this story is that from the very early days of the church, we find that the kingdom is spread not by creating kingdom followers, but by creating new kingdom ministers. Uh, In this part of the book of Acts, we see a transition Uh, the story of the 12 apostles actually begins to take a lesser role. And the story of people we've never heard of before, people like Stephen, people like Philip, people like Saul, who would change his name to Paul, they really become the heroes of the rest of the book of Acts and become more responsible for spreading the church around the world. The kingdom of God spreads because newcomers become ministers. It's an all-play sort of game. We all spread the kingdom of God. We all become ministers. It's not just about the big leaders. And the church of God has always been grassroots and organic in that way. Can I get an amen, amen. from the crowd? Amen. Uh, the job requirements that the apostles put forth for these food distributors uh, included full of the spirit and full of wisdom. They asked for wise people who were filled with spiritual power. And later in the passage, Stephen himself is described as a guy who performed many miraculous signs and wonders uh, among the people. So he wasn't just like a food distribution administrator, although that was valuable enough in that context, but he was literally a miracle worker. Um, I often thought that if you're, Advertising for a new staff pastor, maybe that should be the first line. Uh, Must perform miraculous signs and wonders in the streets. And it would probably um, make the resumes you got very, very interesting. Uh, So evidently, Stephen was very smart and also incredibly supernatural in the way that he lived his life, which would kind of become the model uh, for ministry. Uh, in in the rest of the book of Acts, but Stephen does so well, and he has such influence in the ethnically diverse synagogues of Jerusalem that he gets set up. He gets set up by people in the the more Greek uh, synagogues. Sometimes people uh, who are uh, converts or immigrants in in a in a place become more patriotic than the natives, you know. And this is one of those instances. They called themselves the synagogues of freed men, you know, the sort of the ultra patriotic synagogues. And Stephen was converting too many people to Jesus. So the ultra patriots of the freemen synagogues, well, they set him up. They start to lie about him. They generate a lot of false accusations and they bring a lot of false witnesses as they were jealous or they felt threatened. I don't know. But Stephen uh, gets to make a defense. He's dragged into court and they ask him, are these charges true? Now, what should he have said in that moment? Uh, I don't know, but the most obvious answer would be, well, no, I haven't blasphemed against Moses actually. I I, I haven't uh, criticized uh, the Jewish people. This is a trumped up charge. You know, what I've done is a bunch of really, really cool miracles. Here, let me bring in some of the people I've healed in Jesus's name. And and they can talk about that. That sort of strategy had already worked for Peter and John when they were dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. But Stephen doesn't make that play. Instead, he launches into a long history lesson about how traditionally Jewish leaders had misunderstood where the story was heading and in fact, they're res- responsible uh, for killing Jesus. He was unnecessarily provocative, you might say. You know, he was super incendiary. The dude did not do himself any favors in court. Right? And then he finishes by basically insulting the crowd, the most powerful politicians and judges in the nation. He says, you stiff-necked people, you stubborn Fools who don't understand the real work of God on earth. You killed Jesus and he was the promised one. He was the Messiah. He was a righteous one. They're, he's in trouble, right? They're threatening to imprison him at least and he just reads them the right act. He tells them how wrong they are. He's not the least bit apologetic and, and that decides his fate. They can't take that. He provokes them beyond their endurance Uh, And so they gnash their teeth, they drag him outside the city, and they stone him to death. And Stephen perishes in great form, asking the Lord Jesus to forgive his murderers, which is what Jesus himself did when he was being murdered on the cross. And I read that story. It's, It's a very famous story in Christendom. I mean, the story of the first martyr, how could that not be famous? What impresses me most about it is Stephen's attitude throughout it. You know, attitude is always the most contagious thing about us. And this story just drips with Stephen's attitude. We don't get to learn just what he did, but obviously the way he went about doing things was really impressive. You know, he gave food to widows. But man, he did it with power, and he did it with wisdom, and he was witnessing in the synagogues of the free men. He was witnessing on the streets. And when he gets a chance to defend himself in front of the court, he witnesses to them. This guy had style. You know, attitude, it turns out, uh, is, is everything. And the faith attitude is the biggest thing. How, how would you describe Stephen's attitude in this story?
1: i guess with stephen's attitude too i guess he's frustrated too because in the beginning it says you know you still that people uncircumcised in hearts and ears you always resist the holy spirit as your fathers did so did you so i guess he was frustrated about the fact that there's a cycle going on in the past saying that oh your past generations are doing the same thing as you guys are doing right now so why still why is it still going on he, i guess he's just through the Holy Spirit, he's just expressing his frustration uh, saying, come on people, what's going on here? We're supposed to break this cycle. I thought we were the generation to hear the Holy Spirit and everything.
5: I think for me, the two um, the two words that stand out are, are humility and grace. Um, like thinking, thinking about how it says, like he was a man that was full of God's grace and power and he performed miracles. And yet on paper, so to speak, like his job, um, In verse two, it says like his job was to wait on tables, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, his job was to distribute food which um, like from a worldly perspective may seem more menial so that like the apostles can go and do like the real job. Um, But really like it takes somebody of such humble character um, to operate in the full grace and like power of the Lord and to be totally in the zone in that space.
2: I have a feeling that if you met Stephen, he would make an impact somehow. You know, he was just that kind of guy, whether he was passing out bags of food to needy people or doing miracles in the temple courts or standing before national leaders. This was a guy who was always on point. He was always light. You know, he was always salt. He was flavoring the environment wherever he went. I imagine that he was always thinking something like, all right, what am I trying to accomplish here? What am I trying to accomplish right now? He was always on mission. I can't help but wonder what he was thinking that day as the stones began to fly. You know, was he thinking, is this, is this the right time for me to die? You know, was he thinking, is, is, this, is this too much? Did I maybe press a little too far uh, on this one? Was he thinking, have I gotten too little out of my ministry? You know, is, is this the time to cut it short? Um, or was he just acting on principle? And you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I wasn't in the guy's head, um, but he seemed confident in what he was doing. Um, and it certainly took him to the full extreme. As Stephen dies, uh, he sees a vision of an open heaven. Uh, I love what he sees. He sees Jesus standing at attention next to the glory of God the glory of of the Father. Um, He sees, at the very least, that the Lord is watching him as he dies, uh, which is a very poignant thing in and of itself. He sees the Lord watching him in his final moment as he dies, but the Lord does not intervene to save him. The Lord does not intervene to mediate his sacrifice or to reduce his suffering. Uh, The Lord is merely watching. What, What does that tell you? What does that tell you about what's going on in heaven? Stephen didn't see
5: Jesus as like not taking action. He 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 even said like please receive my spirit as his final words and it was almost like God um, noticing you know like showing that he he's he notices this he he's paying attention to this this is important and also showing Stephen that even now he's not alone because Im- imagine if you're being stoned out there you probably f- Everybody is hating your bosom trying to kill you. you. Probably feel alone, but Jesus, who went through the exact same thing, is is there with him during these final moments. He went through the same thing. He died. Um, instead of God, you know, God. Everyone was trying to ask tell, God, uh, ask, tell ask Jesus to to intervene to get have God get him out of the cross, and that's not what he did. He stayed faithful to the very end, and Stephen did the exact same thing. And then I was just thinking maybe another reason why God doesn't intervene is because um, Stephen already saw that he would be with the Lord. Like before they even started stoning him in, in verse 54, Stephen, um, because it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to him and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So, um, yeah, there wasn't, maybe Stephen knew there wasn't going to be any intervention because he just, he was already there in a sense.
2: When we're in a moment of great suffering, it can feel as if God isn't paying attention to us, as if he has overlooked us. I and mean, that's the reason why we're suffering or if you're in a moment where you're feeling that, well, I haven't accomplished enough yet, you know, or I've gotten too little out of this investment, or you know, I'm just overlooked generally in the world. You know? If you feel like, oh, if I'm going to be a martyr, I'd like it to be dramatic. and it Doesn't seem to be generating that sort of interest. Um, if, if that's you, if you're having a moment like that, I think Stephen's vision is a great one to consider. This is what it tells you, that God is watching, that the Lord is paying attention. I think this is a vision that honors Stephen, because in it, the Lord Jesus is standing, right? And in those days, uh, when uh, a preacher taught, when a rabbi taught, he would sit and everyone else would stand. In the court, the judges sat. It was the witnesses who stood And it's as if Jesus, in this vision, is saying to Stephen, I witness what you're doing. I bear witness to your sacrifice. If anyone else says it's not worth it, rest assured, I am witness of everything that's gone into this moment. I see it all. At least that's what I imagine is going on here. During uh, the Gospels, Jesus is recorded several times as saying something along the lines of, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross daily and then come follow me. Jesus repeatedly uh, to his disciples speaks of being a living martyr, of, uh, of carrying with you the spirit of sacrifice, uh, service or suffering, however you'd like to understand it. He said uh, one of his paradoxical statements, anyone who wishes to save his or her life must lose it. You have to be willing to lose your life if you want to gain the full life of heaven. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, this is a concept that you're probably familiar with, that you've probably meditated on. You have to give up yourself, whatever that means. Give up your own plans, your own ambitions. And instead, adopt the plans and the ambitions and the values of Christ. we can't do the right thing in the kingdom of God unless we're willing to sacrifice all things, all things of ourselves. Now, that's a, that's a process, I think, and all of us are somewhere on the ark. I mean, maybe you feel like you're ready to be a martyr, maybe not. Um, but it's a process, I think, of deciding what matters most in a given moment. And that's something that we're all familiar with. Stephen had the attitude that the first thing must always be the first thing. And it's just really clear for Peter that the first thing was always advancing the cause of Christ in the world, you know, bringing the kingdom forward, uh, whatever that meant in the situation. And and even if he was in court on trial for his life, that was still the first thing. You know, that was still what matters, what mattered most to Stephen. And I try to think about it every day when I get up and I engage the day or this crisis or that person or this situation, I'm always thinking in the back of my head, well, what matters most here in this moment? What matters most? And everything else needs to be set aside. Everything else needs to be set aside. And that is the spirit, I think, of the living martyr. Whether or not I do it perfectly or you do it perfectly is another issue. Stephen had the attitude that the first thing must always be the first, no matter the situation, no matter the threat, no matter what else was going on. So if I were to describe Stephen's attitude when it came right down to it, uh, particularly given the terms of this story, I would say that he had a death-defying attitude. Sound right? Sounds about right. The dude was death-defying. Even in the moment of his death, he was sort of defying at least the fear of death. You know, that's that's not what, is, what was important. As he was dying, he wasn't thinking, oh, the most important thing is that I'm dying. He's thinking, I want to make sure these guys get forgiven. So Lord Jesus, forgive them. You know, they, they don't know exactly what they're doing. If I had to uh, express what comprises a good death-defying attitude, well, uh, I would say this. A death-defying attitude is the attitude that says, um, whatever, whatever happens, it's never too much, and it's never too little, and it's never too late to do exactly what I ought to be doing for Jesus. You know? If you're facing a, a gun to your head, whether it's a literal gun or just a metaphorical gun, you feel like something's about to go very wrong for you, or the sacrifice or the suffering is about to be too much, it's too much for you to handle, I feel like the Lord Jesus would say to you, "Eh, it's not too much. It's not too much. You can still do the right thing. It's not too much for you. Or you would say, Oh, you know, it's not, it's not too little. You haven't gotten too little out of this situation. You haven't gotten too little from God. You know, there's more to come. There's always more to come. You can't think that way. You haven't been cheated. Or he would say to you, you know, it's 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 not too late. You, you might think that you're not the right person for this job. You're not the right per- person for this sacrifice. You're not up to the challenge. But, you know, you can change in an instant. And if you can change, you can transform anything around you. It's never too much. It's never too little. It's never too late. Let's say it again together. Never, never too much. It's never, too much. It's never too little. It's never, it's never too, too late. late. I feel like we're catching on. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bear witness to our lives. I pray, Lord, as the early Christians often prayed that we would be considered worthy to sacrifice for your name. But more than that, Lord, that we would always consider it worth it to sacrifice for your name, whether it be through classic sacrifice or service. Or suffering. Whatever comes against us is never too much, it can never force us to do anything other than what we're being called to do. Even if times are hard and the threats are large and the suffering is big, you have not given us too little and you will not fail to give us more in eternity. And we know, Lord, that it's not too late to become the person that we are meant to be. We can do it this day, no matter how much change it requires. It's never too late to do the right thing. It's never too late to do the Jesus thing. We thank you, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit with us, the presence of God in the here and now. We pray that we would be filled with that power, that the Spirit would teach us wisdom, so that wherever we do, we would not be doing it alone. We'd never be apart from you. In Jesus' name, everybody says, Amen.
3: Hey guys, thanks again for joining us for worship today. It is a wonderful thing to have a community of faith in this challenging period. Now remember, if you've got a prayer class, maybe the sermon spoke to you in a special way, maybe you received a prophetic word you like some prayer about, please email julie at bluewatermission.org. Include your name and your phone number and someone will call you back between 10.30 and 11 today. We would be happy to support you. Now receive this blessing. In the name of Jesus, I bless you to find the joy and the purpose of giving your life for Jesus in small and big ways this week. Lord, thank you that we never outgive you and that you offer us abundant life every day. Now, as we say goodbye, please enjoy a few final pics of our community, of some of you guys sheltering in place and keep up the great work.